Hi, everybody. This is John Allen, and welcome to Last Week in the Church. This week, I'm going to be breaking down four stories for you. An extraordinary assembly of the American bishops, a papal summit on the economy, an historic lawsuit by an Italian cardinal, and the curious case of the Pope and the Brazilian supermodel. And we begin with the fall meeting of the American bishops, which took place November 16th and 17th. Now, before the American bishops gathered, two events of mammoth importance for church and state in the United States took place. On November 3rd, of course, there was the American election, and although it took a few more days to figure out what had actually happened, we now know that a new president has been selected. Uh, President-elect Joe Biden uh, is preparing to take power on January 20th, and although the results continue to be contested by President Trump, most experts believe that the transition is actually taking place uh, and that Biden is set to become only the second Roman Catholic president in the history of the United States. Uh, one week later, on November 10th, the Vatican released its long-awaited report on the case of ex-cardinal and ex-priest Theodore McCarrick, which, of course, was a massively traumatic event uh, for the church in the United States, part of what we now remember as the Summer of Shame in 2018, reviving the sexual abuse crisis in the American church and putting the spotlight squarely not just on the crime but the cover-up. And as if that weren't enough for the bishops to, to deal with, uh, they also were meeting in the wake of the George Floyd protests, the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, a national debate about race in America, and a resurgence of the COVID-19 pandemic uh, that, see, that has seen many parts of the United States either already back in lockdown or seemingly headed that way. And to make matters even more complicated, the bishops could not even get together in person because of COVID-19. So this was a virtual session, took place online. Bishops logged in uh, and then sat in front of their computers to have these conversations, which meant, of course, that many of the most interesting moments at a meeting of the bishops conference, which you know, never are when they're actually in the meeting room. Uh, it's when, you know, they're having breakfast together or they're at coffee breaks or they're at dinner. Those informal conversations where the sausage actually gets ground, none of that could take place this time. Uh, so it was a full agenda under trying circumstances, but some very interesting things came out of it. Let's begin with the McCarrick mess. Uh, so we talked last week about the Vatican's McCarrick Report, which basically found that three different papacies, those of John Paul II, Benedict XVI, and Francis, at critical moments had credible allegations in front of them that they chose to essentially set aside, promoted and maintained McCarrick in power anyway, largely because they were listening almost exclusively to bishops and setting aside information that was coming from any place else. Now, uh, it is no surprise, therefore, that one of the key items of discussion at the bishops' conference was how to improve the process for selecting bishops' candidates and reviewing their performance once they're in office. Uh, and there was an, uh, a number; there were a number of voices suggesting that that process needs to become much more transparent. Uh, it also needs to do a better job of including lay voices, both lay men and women 
who have insight uh, into the history and the performance of a particular either candidate to become a bishop or a bishop who was already in office. We don't exactly know uh, which specific reforms will flow from that, but that was certainly a point of emphasis as the bishops got together. Uh, a second point was what this report doesn't contain. Uh, and, and that primarily means uh, the money trail, because this report says at the outset, uh, it does not provide an accounting of the money that Theodore McCarrick provided to the Vatican over the years, uh, first as the Archbishop of Newark, then as the Archbishop of Washington, as the founder of the Papal Foundation, and in a variety of other ways. And that's because, according to the report, there was no evidence that the money drove the decisions in the Vatican uh, about McCarrick. Now, that may very well be the case, but many American bishops during their fall meeting said, that doesn't matter, we still need an accounting, we need to follow the money, find out where it came from, what ends McCarrick put it to, uh, and what other ramifications it may have had in the life of the church, both in the States and in the Vatican. And I would note that all this is unfolding as we got a clear indication that the McCarrick story is not over, uh, because just days after the bishops met, uh, noted plaintiff's attorney, Jeff Anderson, in the United States, filed a lawsuit against the Vatican uh, on behalf of four people who claimed that they were sexually abused by Theodore McCarrick, naming the Vatican as the principal defendant and arguing that the Vatican is on the hook here because McCarrick, as a bishop and a cardinal, was an employee of the Vatican. Now, here's the thing. Virtually every other lawsuit against the Vatican in American courts related to the sex abuse crisis hasn't focused on bishops. It's focused on priests. It's argued that priests were Vatican employees. That, of course, is preposterous. There are you know, more than 400,000 Catholic priests in the world, and everybody knows that if they're an employee of anybody, it isn't the pope, it's their bishop or their religious superior. Bishops are a different case. There are about 5,000 Catholic bishops in the world. There's only been one, and they are much more directly supervised by the Vatican, as we all know. Only the pope can, quote-unquote, hire a bishop, and only the, quote, can, quote-unquote, fire a bishop. And the power to hire and fire has traditionally been the test in American jurisprudence for an employer-employee relationship. There's only been one case that tested this before. It was a 2004 lawsuit in Kentucky, the O'Brien lawsuit, which argued that the bishop there was an employee of the Vatican. But that lawsuit was dropped in 2010 because it was a class action suit and the lawyer couldn't come up with enough plaintiffs to sustain it. But along the way, the Vatican supplied two briefs from an American canon lawyer by the name of Edward Peters, insisting that a bishop is not an, a Vatican employee under uh, the church's law because a bishop is a successor of the apostles in his own right. No American court has ever been asked to settle this question before. Uh, it may well be that one of the final f bits of fallout of the McCarrick case uh, is that sooner or later, an American judge is going to have to settle this question. Is a bishop a Vatican employee or not? That may pit American civil law against the church's canon law. It may raise all kinds of fascinating church-state questions uh, and guarantees, in a way, that this story is going to continue to be with us. All right. The other bit of business on the bishop's agenda was the Joe Biden question. Archbishop Jose Gomez, president of the conference, began uh, the session by noting that the election of Biden 
risks creating confusion among the Catholic faithful because, of course, Biden is a Democrat who holds, roughly speaking, pro-choice positions. Uh, and Gomez announced that the conference was creating a new working group to navigate its relationship with the new administration, which will be led by Archbishop Alan, Alan Vigneron of Detroit. Now, both Gomez and Vigneron conventionally would be seen as center-right figures, sort of John Paul II bishops. It's a clear signal that the bishops' conference does not intend to go quietly into that good night uh, as an administration takes power that will have different positions from official Catholic teaching when it comes to the life issues, abortion, euthanasia, contraception, including the issue of whether mandatory insurance coverage of contraception ought to be part of American health care law. Uh, another interesting point, uh, the bishops indicated uh, on the issue of race in America that there is a need for tough conversations about race, both uh, on the national level and also inside the church itself, confronting the vestigial remains of racism uh, within the Catholic Church in America. will be fascinating to track how that plays out. On the COVID situation, the bishops indicated that they want to try to maintain the maximum possible space for public worship to continue, uh, but they also want to balance that against public health no indication that the bishops are going to come up with a uniform policy on that. So some bishops, no doubt, will comply with government restrictions. Others, like Bishop Nick, uh, Nicholas DiMarzio in Brooklyn, will push back against them. DiMarzio recently filed an appeal for relief in front of the United States Supreme Court to restrictions imposed by New York Governor Chris, uh, sorry, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. Chris, his brother, is a colleague of mine at CNN. Uh, but in any event, by the Cuomo administration uh, in New York. It will be fascinating to see how that plays out. Uh, all right, shift gears. Right now, uh, a, a papal summit on the economy called the Economy of Francis is unfolding. This was an event that was originally scheduled to take place in March in Assisi, the birthplace of St. Francis, but because of COVID, got moved to this month uh, and got moved to a virtual space. Uh, in, in, in essence, this is an, att an attempt by Pope Francis to marshal his forces, and in particular, the young people of the world, to push for his agenda for economic reform, as outlined in his recent encyclical, Fratelli Tutti, or All Brothers, which is a quote from St. Francis. In, in essence, it is a papal attempt to push for a, a kind of all-out act of resistance to what he described in that encyclical, as a neoliberal capitalistic individualism that disregards the poor and disregards the common good. It is an A-list of speakers at this conference. Jeffrey Sachs is there. Uh, Mohammed Yunus, the Bangladeshi Nobel Prize winner for his theories on uh, micro-lending, which has transformed the economy in many third world nations. Even Leonardo Boff, the famous Brazilian liberation theologian, uh, is there. Uh, and if you want a synthesis of Pope Francis's social, political, and cultural agenda for the remainder of his papacy, this event is it. Uh, more than 120 nations are represented in the gathering, some 2,000 young people from all over the world. You will never get a better window uh, into what Pope Francis desperately cares about right now and what he will try to promote uh, going forward. By the way, it is interesting to note 
that many of the economic prescriptions to be floated at this summit dovetail more or less exactly with the platform of then-candidate, now-president-elect Joseph Biden in the United States. And it will be very interesting to track going forward whether Pope Francis and President-elect Biden find one another and therefore whether the world's most important hard power and the world's most important soft power are able to join forces in pursuit of what, what this event describes as an effort to reanimate the global economy. All right. Third, uh, another development this week that is just utterly fascinating. Uh, Italian Cardinal Angelo Becciu, formerly basically the most powerful guy in the Vatican after Pope Francis himself. <coughs> he was the sustituto, the substitute, meaning basically the Pope's chief of staff from 2011 to 2018. Uh, Recently, uh, Cardinal Beichu was, well, he resigned down the barrel of a gun. The Pope called him into his office and told him, you are resigning, uh, first of all, as the head of the Vatican's Department for Making Saints, and secondly, as a cardinal, you're going to resign all of your rights and privileges as a cardinal, although he retains the title, and this is because Cardinal Bechu was accused of improperly funneling money uh, to relatives, basically nepotism. The charge was uh, that he was funneling money to a foundation in the island of Sardinia, where he comes from, that was run by his brother, uh, and also that when he was the substitute, he funneled more money to a construction company led by a couple of his other brothers, that did remodeling for Vatican embassies around the world. Cardinal Bechu has also been linked to a 450 million euro uh, real estate scandal in the Vatican centered in London and involved the purchase of a piece of property, a former former Herod's warehouse uh, that was going to be converted, rehabbed basically, into luxury apartments in the posh London neighborhood of Chelsea. All of this was exposed by an Italian news magazine by the name of L'Espresso, or The Express. Uh, Cardinal Beciu has now filed a $12 million libel and defamation of character lawsuit against L'Espresso. He is alleging what he called in the lawsuit planetary damage to his reputation. And he is also interestingly claiming uh, that this report uh, by L'Espresso, first of all, he suggests, it rolled out in a kind of coordinated smear campaign with the Vatican itself. He's claiming that metadata in the article that L'Espresso published on his resignation proves that it knew about his resignation 12 hours before it happened, suggesting that Francis, or somebody on Francis's team, had tipped off L'Espresso uh, that this was coming. Cardinal Bechu was also claiming that this smear campaign cost him his shot at the papacy. Because since he no longer has his rights as a cardinal, he won't be in the next conclave. Now, the thing is, literally, this isn't true. Uh, because under church law, uh, the cardinals do not have to elect a fellow cardinal as the next pope. 
they could elect any baptized male. Now, admittedly, it doesn't happen very often. The last time was the 14th century, Pope Urban VI, who had been the Archbishop of Bari. But uh, technically speaking, this did not cost Pechu his shot at the papacy. So I don't know what impact that is going to have on his lawsuit. And in terms of real politique, I would suggest that given everything that has happened, all the water under the bridge, he's probably not the most plausible candidate in the world anyway. Uh, but we will see how this plays out. Finally, this week, there is the curious matter of the Pope and his Instagram account liking a picture of a Brazilian supermodel. Uh, This supermodel is named Natalia Garabotto. And on November 13th, her Instagram account, which had a picture of her scantily clad uh, in a kind of racy schoolgirl pose, leaning up in a kind of saucy fashion against some, some lockers in a school hall room, Uh, It attracted the most unusual of all likes, uh, a like from Pope Francis himself. Now, naturally, young Natalia was delighted, instantly used her social media platforms to push the fact that she had been liked by the Pope, saying, no matter what else, at least I'm going to heaven. Well, the Vatican was very quick to retract that like once they were made aware of it. Uh, They claim an internal probe shows that nobody on their side uh, liked that photo. So they're demanding that Instagram launch a probe and figure out who actually did this. On on the other hand, others are suggesting that this could have been yet another communication snafu uh, on the part of the Vatican. Maybe some staffer thought that he or she was in their own private account rather than the Pope's uh, and hit the wrong button. You know, we don't know. We'll find out. The Vatican is sticking by its position that it was not the will of Pope Francis to like this supermodel photo. Natalia Garaboto is sticking by her position that she got a papal thumbs up and that's enough for her. All right. That's last week in the church this week. Thanks for watching. We will be with you next Friday. Same time, same bat channel. In the meantime, stay safe, stay healthy, have a fantastic and blessed week. We will talk to you again soon.